Manaso. So today, this morning, we return once again to the meditative cultivation of compassion. For those of, who you, those of you who know your Lum Room well, you probably know the next phase I like to attend to, and that is this deepest dimension of suffering. It's hard to get a really good translation of it, but the, the ubiquitous or all-pervasive suffering of conditioned phenomena... But what it really is, I would call it existential suffering. It's not a good translation, but it actually is the meaning. Existential suffering, it it refers to our fundamental vulnerability to suffering of body and mind. And it's most clearly illuminated by pointing to the cause of it, or what's the very nature of it. And it said these closely held, the closely held aggregates, the fact that we're so closely identifying with, I mean mind, with respect to our bodies and mind, that's it, right there. That's why we are vulnerable to suffering, right? That grasping and the clinging. So we can see that this operates on two levels, I mean, at least. One is that which we attended to for the first four weeks here, attending to the three marks of existence, and then especially the third one of is there anything in the body, in terms of the four elements, the body parts, and so forth, anything there that by its own nature is I or mine, that it really is me or really is mine by its own nature. Is there anything or not? Of course, the Buddhist answer, based upon investigation, is no. And so in that regard, as one attends to the one's own experience of the body, then one sees it more simply, as, in, as we say in the, the fundamental teachings on the Sarpitana, these phenomena, they are, one perceives them simply as phenomena, chutsam merely as phenomena rather than the elaborations mixed in with them of being I and mine. So there's one whole dimension. And so if one can simply experience the phenomena of the, of, the, of the body arising, then it's really as if they're orphaned, as if they have no possessor, because they don't. They're arising in space, they dissolve back into space, and with that mode of perception from that perspective, then freedom is alleviated. But then there's this whole, whole dimension we've been looking into for this, for this past week, going into the teachings of emptiness, that not only is this body devoid of a a possessor, an agent, an individual person who is autonomous and controls it, but when one looks into the very nature of the body itself, is there anything really there from its own side? And so the emptiness of the body, if one fathoms that, then all the more so is, is one really truly freed of suffering with respect to the body. It's said that for Arya Bodhisattvas, so those bodhisattvas have direct realization of emptiness. They can give away their limbs. They can chop up, you would like, like an arm, an elbow, an eye, whatever. Arya Deva apparently gave, one, gave away one of his eyes and so forth. They say an Arya Bodhisattva can give away one's, his own limbs, his or her own limbs, as, as easily as other people give away vegetables. You know, because they're just there. They're just kind of lying around. Oh, I, I, have, I have two arms. I do have a spare. Would you like the left one or the right one? You know? And would you like that minced or diced or how would you like it? You know? And so, so when we attend to suffering and when we seek to arouse compassion, a very important point brought to my attention some years ago is that for compassion, for, for there to be like, like a rocket taking off, for there to be liftoff, that we don't simply remain earthbound in empathy, in sadness, in a feeling with of sorrow and so forth, feeling you know, sympathetic and all of that, that's certainly shows some hu- humanness there, that we're not cold and indifferent to others' plight. But if it remains only at that level, weeping with others, weeping 
feeling sorrow with others, sorrow, pain with others, pain. It just looks like one more person is in pain now. There used to be one, now we have two. You know? So exactly where is the benefit? I mean, it's better, that better clearly than just being aloof. But now if just two people are in pain, then I'll feel sorry for you if you feel sorry for me. Here's my shoulder. I, oh, you know, not very helpful. Right? And so that's not liftoff. That's, we've all seen those rockets. It's really quite... You, you see in them? Yeah? They go... <laughs> they almost get lift off, and then they just come, and it's just a ball of flame. You know, it's really, I'm sure, very sad for the people who you know, are looking for something really fun, and all they have is a big kaboom. That's kind, of compa- that's kind of empathy with no compassion. It looks like lift off, and then, uh, uh, maybe not. Or, or, or one of those that goes, uh, uh, <laughs> over on the side, then it crashes again. So compassion is lift off. Compassion is liftoff. But for the liftoff to occur, and here's the point that I think is ever so crucial, there must be some vision, some confidence, or even knowledge that liberation is possible. If, there's, if that's not there, then it's just sympathy. And so there it is. So if you look at these three modes of suffering, blatant suffering or the suffering of suffering, if one can see, well, there's some, there's some people in poverty, what could we do to help? then there's, there's a way. If people are ill, and we say, ah, there's a way, and so forth, for the very, these various modes of hedonic suffering. And one sees, oh, well, health mouth this way. Then, then, of course, people get inspired. But if you look at something, you see no possibility of hope. Then people want to turn off the television, turn off the news. So what can you do about it? You know, just turn it off. There's no compassion. It's like, I just don't want to get sad. You know? But if you see an avenue, then compassion arises. Out of compassion comes benevolent, altruistic activity, right? And so likewise to the deeper dimension of suffering, that mid-range of suffering that arises directly as a result of attachment and craving, the suffering of change. If it were true that attachment and craving, this mental affliction, not simply desire, but the mental affliction of, cra- of craving and attachment, if these were absolutely hardwired, we're just animals, this is evolutionary, we have just no escape, you know, if that were the case, then we just have to say, well, doesn't it suck? You know, isn't it too bad? But of course, that is not the Buddhist view, that none of these mental afflictions are hardwired, are intrinsic, are indelible. And so, but then to take that not as simply an intellectual stance, but actually to experience, get some taste of what's it like to experience that freedom from attachment, the freedom of craving. And how would you possibly do that and not just be, how do you say, apathetic or depressed? And to my mind, the practical method Find another source of happiness. Because if all the happiness we know about, every single time we've experienced happiness, it's hedonic. It's some, because something happens nice to us. A happy thought, prestige, money, sensual pleasures, and so forth. If that's it, then how would you not be attached? I don't know how you'd ever do it. If you think that, you know, that's the only, if that's the only water faucet in the house, how are you not going to be attached to that one if you want water? There's no place else to go, so I don't think it's possible. I think you're stuck, right? But if through your own experience, not just reading text or doing discursive meditation, but through your own experience, you really find it's true. There's another, there are, there's another tap in the house. There's another source of water, another source of happiness. It's not stimulus-driven. 
It doesn't tail, entail grasping on and holding an object, whether that object is a person or a place or an object, material object or what have you. When you tap into eudaimonia and just, you know, just turn it, get, get a little few dro- drops coming out. Quite a few of you have at least gotten some drops where you say, you know, I'm sitting there practicing mindfulness and reasoning. I kind of enjoyed it. Wow. You are weird. How can you possibly sit there watching your breath and enjoy that? This California guy must be hypnotizing you. <laughs> but of course I'm not. You know, that in fact, you find it. And you don't have to explain it to anybody else. If they've never experienced it, they might just think, well, you're just weird. But of course, it has nothing really to do with the breath. I mean, that's not the crucial point. It's the quality of awareness you're bringing to the breath. The mindfulness of breathing, the quality of awareness. And finding, oh, when I attend to my breath and then I attend to other things, I'm finding there's more of a sense of ease. One of you told me something so nice, it was very meaningful to me. In one of our personal interviews, this person just simply mentioned the other day, this person had to go out to some, I think a shopping area, and just sitting there felt very much at ease. You know, coming out of this very contemplative environment and then going into the other one, which is not at all contemplative, but he said, you know, I've never felt so so at ease, so relaxed in a public environment. That made me really happy. Really happy. Good. Good. That's genuine. That wasn't because you went to an especially good mall or shopping, shopping place. It's, right? It's the quality of your awareness you brought to it. And then you can be at ease in a situation like that where otherwise maybe a bit of tension, nervousness, or what have you. Really good. So as we're tapping into this eudaimonia, just you know, drip by drip, little cup, teaspoon by teaspoon, experiencing some enjoyment of the soothing quality, the release, the relaxation of the body and the mind, enjoying the free, effortless flow of the, of the breath. And finding, oh, this is nice, I like doing this, I'd like to spend more time doing this. Well, you can, you don't need to rent it, you don't need to buy it. Built in, you know, one of those free ones. So as you experience this, and it goes deeper and deeper, and then you experience, of course, it's not just shamatha, it's cultivating the four measurables and finding this too, the kind of quality of well-being arises there, this from the inside. It's not because of the people you're attending to, but the quality of awareness you're bringing to it, right? And of course, for vipassana itself. And so as one tastes in various ways, subtle ways, by way of ethics, by way of cultivating the mind, by way of insight, that, wow, these are real. These three modes of eudaimonia, they're real. Then, you say, but then, that means I can still enjoy sensual pleasures and so forth and so on. Why not? Don't have to hold my nose. You know? But I'm not really dependent on them. I don't need to be attached to them because I found something else that's actually much better. And so I'll use them both. So in that regard, one sees the, the light at the end of the tunnel. One sees real possibility of freedom. Freedom from that dimension of suffering, the suffering of change. Because you see for yourself, attachment is not necessary. We can be freed of it. But I don't think it's possible, really. I don't think it's possible unless we do tap into some other type of well-being. Otherwise, we just become a sourpuss. Would you? I don't care about fame. I don't care about sensual. I don't care about. I don't care about. I don't really. I know it. I know it sucks. I know it sucks. Uh, I don't think it really. I don't think it has a path to enlightenment. It's just a path to suckiness. If you found something else, you say, okay, then I can release this and go into that. And then from that platform, when you attend to other people who really are very fixated on 
the notion, my happiness lies in getting this, you know, and single-pointedly focused on the hedonic, then you'll start to really resonate with statements by Shantideva, such as, while seeking to free ourselves from suffering, we hasten after the causes of suffering. And while seeking to find happiness, we destroy the causes of our own happiness as if they were our foe. And that's a bodhisattva speaking. And I think you sense he's not speaking with condescension or contempt or those, those people down there. There's nothing down his nose. He's simply recognizing here we are. You know. We've all been there. But when you, are, when you gain some elevation, some elevation and you see, well, that's one way, but it never works out very well in the end. But here's another way, and it does, then genuine compassion arises the genuine yearning. May you be free because you see that freedom is possible because you've tasted at least the scent. At least you've gotten a few drops in your tongue. And you know, this is not just some religious belief system or just blind faith. This is something, you know, you've got, you're, you're the hound dog. You pick up the scent. It's a real scent and you know where to trace it to. And so then compassion. Compassion. Because you really see it is possible. And so may we all be free of that suffering of change. Because it's not necessary. And then this deepest dimension, and we'll end on that, go to the meditation. But the suffering that comes from grasping onto, identifying, fiercely holding onto our own bodies and mind as truly and intrinsically mine, or even at, at a deeper level, we've just begun to explore this, the deeper level, the very reification of the body as something real, independent, substantially, inherently existent. As one gains the glimmering, if it's just even the faintest, the faintest glimmering, number one, that may not be true. The, may, the body may actually not exist in that way. In fact, I have maybe some sense of it. I think maybe I'm picking up the, the bit scent, scent there. And if that were true, if I could thoroughly realize that, if I could live there, umetawa, if I could actually view reality from the middle way view, from the Madhyamaka view, the view, if I could view reality from a perspective that neither reifies nor falls into nihilism, if I could view reality right from that middle way, there'd be such freedom. There'd be such freedom. I wouldn't experience suffering by way of my body. If I realized the emptiness of my mind, I wouldn't realize, I wouldn't experience suffering by way of my mind. Wow. And so if one has some glimmering there, and then one attends to all sentient beings, are still prone to this grasping, this reification onto I am, I am, mine, and the reification of phenomena as existing inherently. If one gets the glimmering that some intuition, some insight into the emptiness of all phenomena, then with that cognitive basis, you really have a platform for developing compassion, the aspiration that it really could happen. We really could be free, even from that deepest dimension of suffering. That stems from delusion. So we have that blatant suffering, not confined to anger, but certainly strongly affiliated with it, and the remedy is ethics. We have this middle one from yesterday, the suffering of change, related to very strongly to attachment, and samadhi really is the remedy. But now we go to the deepest level, and this obviously is related to delusion, the kind of suffering that comes from misapprehending reality. Right? And then obviously... This is now perfectly clear. The remedy is wisdom. The 
remedies wisdom. So Shantideva says at the beginning of the wisdom chapter, all that is preceded, all, everything that's come prior to this, prior to the ninth chapter, all of this is for the sake of wisdom. Everything is for the sake of wisdom. Because the wisdom provides a key. Knowing reality as it is, that provides the key for genuine liberation, freedom from suffering, so that compassion can then celebrate that this really is possible. So this is where, at this deepest level of compassion, attending to the deepest level of suffering, this is where there just must be a union of wisdom and compassion. If there's no wisdom there, you're walking around in the dark. You know. And so when, this, when there arises that glimmering, there's real possibility of freedom here from this deepest dimension of suffering. And one arouses this yearning to be free, arouses this for oneself. May I be free? Because after all, I'm just one more sentient being. That's why any notion of condescension is crazy. Just one more. Out of an ocean of sentient beings, one more. But if I see the possibility of freedom for myself through wisdom, through insight, because I've already something, gotten some glimmering, that insight is authentic, and there's no need to suffer by way of the body or mind when one realizes that they are merely phenomena, and moreover, they're empty phenomena. When it has some glimmering of that, then powerful renunciation, or the spirit of emergency, ngenjungi samba, this spirit, this intention, this resolve of definitely emerging from samsara can be very, very powerful. I mean, really kind of all-consuming. Because when you get it, when you see that real possibility of freedom, I have to say, really, nothing else matters. It really doesn't. Just nothing else matters. I mean, it's all about that. In terms of your own, your own, how do you say, reality here, your own locality, your own individual presence in the universe, when you see there is a possibility of freedom, then nothing else matters. Everything else is subordinated to that. And so there's renunciation. There's a spirit of emergence, of definite emergence. Definite means you emerge from samsara and you do not just fall back. You're not like a fish that jumps out of the water and then just goes right back in. You're like a rocket that achieves escape velocity and gets out of the, out of the gravitational field and just takes off. I'm gone. Hasta la vista. Never. <laughs> you know, you're gone. You're free. And that's the Arhat's ideal. That's the Shravakayana ideal. I'm going to achieve escape velocity from this sphere of samsara and never come back. Thank you very much. Nothing there for me. And then we shift over to the Bodhisattva ideal. Or simply to the four measurables. And one says, oh, but wait a minute. Just hold on. I'm not the only one here. And one opens one's eye to the world around, we, around us. And we say, oh, my goodness, we're all in that same in that same situation, aren't we? All of us, all sentient beings. And therefore, here comes immeasurable loving kindness. Immeasurable loving kindness with no barriers, no boundaries. Because on this level, it just, it's a total flattener. Whether people are friendly, unfriendly, evil, or virtuous, whatever they are, this is, this is more fundamental than all of those variations, all those fluctuations, which we've all been through. We've all had previous lives when we are awful and have these previous lives when we are marvelous, ugly and beautiful and so forth. And so we've been through it all. We've seen it all. But when it ends outwardly in this way, from this level, from depth to depth, then there arises, based upon wisdom, the aspiration, may we all be free of all dimensions of suffering, including this most foundational one, 
that is rude in delusion, but for which the antidote is wisdom. And there's the fusion of wisdom and compassion. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Isn't it? I think it's just utterly amazing. I do. I just... I just wonder how I, could, how I could be so fortunate to encounter such a dharma as that. What makes me so lucky? I don't know. I don't know. That's the answer. But I certainly do feel fortunate. Let's meditate. Let's enter into the session by tasting the sweetness of releasing the awareness from this whole network of rumination. Releasing it into the non-conceptual space of the body. Startling the body in its natural state, the respiration and its natural rhythm. by whatever means you find most effective. Settle your mind in its natural state, relaxed, still, and clear.
now let's lay, ever so briefly, a cognitive basis for the cultivation of this deepest dimension of compassion, focusing on the deepest dimension of suffering. Let's lay the cognitive basis by closely applying mindfulness to this space of the body. And whatever events arise within that space, observing earth as earth, water as water, and so on, Observing the phenomena that arise in the space of the body simply for what they are as mere phenomena with no owner, with no personal identity. And then shift to this deeper dimension of vipassana. Examining closely to see whether you can actually find the referent, an objectively existing referent that exists by its own nature, for this term, my body. You find it in any of the body parts, individually or collectively? Do you find it amongst any of the appearances that directly arise to any of your five physical senses? Is this body truly existent anywhere to be found? Can you not only not find it, but can you find 
that it is in fact nowhere to be found. And if so, rest in that emptiness, that awareness of the emptiness of the body. View it as space. ray of empty appearance is arising in space, dissolving back into space. such an awareness then arouse the aspiration. Directed inwards, we call it a spirit of emergence. Many call it renunciation. The aspiration, may I be free from all dimensions of suffering, even the most profound that stems from delusion itself. May I be free from all suffering and its causes. With each in-breath arouses yearning. With each in-breath imagine the darkness of delusion being drawn into and extinguished in the orb of light of pristine awareness at your heart.
With each in-breath, imagine becoming free here and now. Turn your attention outwards. In all the directions, the individual in front of you, to your left and your right, behind you. With this full awareness that we are all in the same ocean. We're all equally vulnerable. We all equally have the potential to be free. Attend closely to those who are around you. With each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May each of us hear be free of all dimensions of suffering, together with their underlying causes. With each in-breath, imagine drawing in the darkness of suffering and delusion siphoning it into this immeasurable orb of light at your heart where it dissolves without in any way being dimmed with no depletion and breath by breath expand this field of compassion to embrace all those around you expanding the field each breath arousing your name. May we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering.
with each in-breath, imagine yourself and all the sentient beings around you becoming free here and now. Boldly venture into this realm of possibility and attend to it closely. The possibility of freedom. You may attend especially to those individuals whom you know personally or you know only by way of the media who are especially burdened by delusion, the mental afflictions that are derivative of delusion and the suffering that stems from delusion, hatred, and craving. Especially attend to them With each in-breath, imagine them becoming free.
release all aspirations and all appearances and let your awareness rest in its own luminous and pure nature. So it's Saturday. Let's hang out for a little, little while. To take that analogy, which is just for pure fun, nothing more. Because who knows whether it's at all possible. But that analogy I gave the other day from this research being done at NASA of a warp drive, it's pretty, I mean, if, you think, if they can't do it, it's still a really cool idea. That space-time in front of you, you're contracting. Space-time behind you, you're expanding. And then you just go into warp drive. Just travel from gal- one galaxy to another in a matter of days, a couple of weeks. It's just an awfully cool idea. And it has to be you know, serious enough that NASA wants to spend money on it. They, have, don't, they don't have money to throw away. Of course, you know where I'm going here is, okay, how can we find a really cool analogy in Dharma? And that is, for all of you who have studied Mahayana Buddhism, actually it's, it's uh, Pali canon and so forth, when you're just first starting out and you have this vision of achieving awakening, how long will it take as you gradually you know, develop virtue, try to purify the mind? Order of magnitude, three, count, three countless eons. And as Honas Dalai Lama pointed out, it's not necessarily that quick. He said it could take you as many as seven countless eons. <laughs> I figure after the first three, who's counting? But, you know, but some people have very large minds. His holiness is certainly one of those people. But to suffice it to say, I mean, it's a finite period of time, but three countless eons, we're talking about whole periods of expansion and contraction of the universe many, many times over. In other words, don't hold your breath. But then when one attends to, and this is where we really are making the segue over into Mahayana, which cognitively, in terms of Vipassana, we already have this past week, and we'll do something similar next Monday, a couple of days. When one gains some intimation, some sense of the enormity of suffering that's going on right now in the world, just, just our planet, let alone the rest of the universe, 
then a sense of urgency can arise. A sense also, as Steph so eloquently wrote in her note some days ago, of just feeling the, the ocean of suffering. And I, when I attend to it with my capacities right now, it just feels like you just want to start screaming. This is not enough. What I, whatever I can do is not enough. It's, it's to say it's a drop in the bucket. No, it's a drop in the ocean. No, it's, it's, a, it's an elementary particle in the ocean. I mean, what I can do with my capacities to alleviate the suffering right now is so minuscule that one either wants to just start screaming or one wants to stop screaming and say, how can I increase my ability so that I'm not so ineffectual, so impotent, so helpless in serving the needs of others? So to take the analogy, imagine you just use a, a conventional rocket. And I think when they, when they escape the gravitational pull of the Earth, they get, get escape velocity from our Earth, I think when they just, then, then they're just cruising out there in just deep space, I think it's something like 18,000 miles an hour. I think something like that. 18,000 miles an hour. Well, if you should look at a distant galaxy and say, okay, let's get in our rocket and go 18,000 miles an hour and let's try to get to the nearest galaxy. Well, not three countless eons, but, you know, really long. And so, where's the warp drive? Where's the warp drive for finding liberation and awakening? How, within a finite, very, very finite, a matter of decades, and it's over, of a human lifespan, how can one take that three countless eons of space-time and try to click into warp drive? That You don't have to do every step, step by step by step, but you get some big boost that just by orders of magnitude exponentially increases your velocity towards enlightenment. Atisha gives us a great big hint when he addresses shamatha and the abilities that naturally, quite easily, readily are developed on the base of shamatha. I'll say it again, I've said it a couple of times already, direct quote from Atisha, once you've achieved shamatha and the abilities that arise simply from shamatha, let alone vipassana, bodhicitta, vajrayana, and so forth, just shamatha. And it's the natural ability stemming from that. In one day, you can accumulate more merit than you can without it in a hundred lifetimes. I think we just stick, clicked into warp drive. Merit means power. It means surging. You're now, you've got super thrust towards enlightenment. right? So there's a big one. So the the distance, if we take that, the distance that you could otherwise travel in a hundred lifetimes, you can now do in one day. It's sounding like that warp drive. And that's your shamatha, right? But then with shamatha, then you're really now well poised in so many different ways to develop great compassion. Not simply boundless compassion, but great compassion. And great compassion is an immediate catalyst for arousing bodhicitta. And then as Shantideva describes so eloquently, especially in the first chapter, of a guide to the Bodhisattva way of life, once you've developed bodhicitta, and it's actually the engines, the afterburners are really going. I mean, it's, it's, it's really going. It's, it's not like, like an old car where you turn the ignition, it goes, ah, ah, ah. And it, you only get it when you're turning the key. You know, the engine turns only, and after a while, of course, the battery goes dead. But actually, you turn the key of your bodhicitta, and then it goes, hmm. Oh, the engine's running now. And I can take my hand off the ignition and I can get into gear. So the engine's running is called the spirit of aspiring for enlightenment. The bodhicitta of aspiring for. Remember? 
And then you get into gear, now that it's turned on, you have genuine bodhicitta of aspiring for enlightenment, and it's, it's turning over, it's uncontrived, it's spontaneous, it's humming, it's going, it's there. And then you just put it into gear. And that's the bodhicitta of engaging, engaging in the bodhisattva way of life, proceeding along. It's into gear. Well, once you've achieved those kind of bodhicitta, the aspiring, the engaging bodhicitta, and it's spontaneous, it's effortless, it's uncontrived, the engine is running, oh, now you've just, it's another warp drive. It's another warp drive. The amount of, the purificatory power of bodhicitta, he says it's like, like the fire at the end of an eon, or like a supernova that just engulfs everything near it. It consumes so many obscurations, so many so much negative karma and so forth. It's just almost cataclysmic for the power of purification of the mind. And of course, the more the mind is purified, the more powerful your warp drive towards enlightenment. Right? And in terms of accruing merit, it's just gone off the charts. You know, with bodhicitta. You're a bodhisattva? Oh, man. That, that dwarfs shamatha. Shamatha is a little dark black hole behind you. You're now really absolutely going... Well, now, why don't you just couple that with the Vipassana? With your shamatha, with your Vipassana, with your bodhicitta, then why not, of course, do the most important thing for which all the other teachings are designed, and that is realization of emptiness, realization of the nature of reality, Vipassana, and gain some realization of emptiness. And now, once again, you've got, you got a third warp drive. Boom, now again, zooming off. And we haven't even touched Vajrayana yet. We're still Sutrayana. But now it's really warp drive. It's three times warp drive. So with this motivation, now one's really ready for stage regeneration and completion. And on this developmental model of stage regeneration and completion, that it's really there that you're collapsing three countless eons into a lifetime or just a couple of them. It's right there, stage regeneration and completion. All the others, it's still three countless eons. Shamatha, Bodhicitta, Vipassana, it's Sutrayana. It's still three countless eons. Which you can imagine how long it takes if you don't have Shamatha, Bodhicitta, and Vipassana. Your beard would get very long. <laughs> but now with those preparations, the Shamatha, the Bodhicitta, Vipassana, and now you apply yourself to stage regeneration completion. One lifetime, why not? If not this lifetime, next one, two or three, whatever, short time. That's just now with those, with the that wisdom, that fusion of wisdom and method that we find, that non-duality of wisdom and method and stage regeneration completion, then it's just like inconceivable. The fourth warp drive, stage regeneration completion. Amazing. That's where you absolutely collapse space-time between where you are and enlightenment. Just collapse it down like an accordion, like taking 13 billion light years and just squeezing it into you know, a room or, if you want the less elaborated way, shamatha, bodhicitta, vipassana, then just break through. Break on through to the other side. Break on through substrate consciousness right over to rikpa. And that's just kind of a warp drive that's just off the charts. Because now you're beyond space and time. You're not traveling through it exponentially. You're just beyond it. You just slipped, stepped, stepped out of the whole system. Directly into Rigpa. 
achieve enlightenment in one lifetime. So the imagery, the, the parallels are simply fun. They're just fun, that's all. But the image that we have from modern cosmology is, is of the universe expanding. And of course, it's not that the, all of the galaxies are, have some kind of little engines on them driving, driving themselves away from each other because they're just sitting there. But in fact, the space-time con- continuum in which all the galaxies and so on are so-called embedded like, muffin, like raisins in a muffin in the oven where the muffin is rising, 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 and then all the raisins in the muffin are all moving away from each other. From what it, so what, if you were sitting on a, on a raisin, in any of the raisins in the muffin, you'd look at all the other raisins and say, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving? They'd all appear to be moving away from you. No matter which one you were on, they're all moving away. Like, was it my breath? Something I said? You know. Everything, but of course that's because the dough itself is expanding, it's rising, and so all the, all the raisins are getting further and further away, away from each other. So that's the present vision. Very much in accordance, I mean, in principle, with Buddhist vision of expanding universe. It's right there in the, poly, in the, in the, in the sutras. Expanding universe. Uh, without the elegance of mathematics, the technology, and so forth of modern physics. And I love the modern physics. So here we have this expansion. But when I was studying cosmology, I asked my professor, a very, very fine professor, I said, what's it expanding into? This space-time continuum, this sphere of reality. If it's expanding, then what's it expanding into? Because if if there weren't any room, then it couldn't expand. It would be bumping into something. Like, let me expand, but get out of the way. But there's nothing in the way, which means there must be space beyond space so that space-time can expand, expand. So there's enough room for it, you know, like a balloon. There has to be space around the balloon, otherwise you can never expand it, no matter how much you breathed into it. And he said, well, we, we just don't have any answer for that in physics. And that's a fair enough answer. It's a perfectly good answer. Given our system of measurement, we just have no way of addressing that. It's not a silly question, but we have no way of addressing that whatsoever. Because all of the measurements, of course, are within the sphere of expanding space-time. It's fair enough. Every system has limitations, right? But nevertheless, the question lingers. If space-time is expanding, what's it expanding into? How about Dharmadhatu? How about Dharmadhatu? Absolute space of phenomena out of which relative space and time, matter and energy, all merge. Dharmadhatu, which is beyond space and time. What if relative space-time is actually just expanding into Dharmadhatu? Well, then the path of liberation would be going beyond what Buddhists call the peak of existence, which is still within the sphere of samsara, breaking through that to the other side, to Dharmadhatu, which is indivisible from primordial consciousness, which is indivisible from the energy of primordial consciousness. And so the path of awakening in Buddhism from the Shravagayana all the way up to Dzogchen is to achieve escape velocity from relative space and time. That you're not just traveling across the universe. You're getting out of the sphere altogether to a space of awareness that is beyond space and time and absolutely beyond all conceptualization. So if you'd like to experience that, shamata, vipassana, tekshu, tutkyo. We'll do it. And relative bodhicitta, says Dujulingba, comes right out of rikpa. 
realization of rigpa, because realization of rigpa is ultimate bodhicitta. And relative bodhicitta emerges spontaneously out of that. So he says, you don't need to look elsewhere. It's already there. It's part of the package. So, now if you all, and people listening by podcast, you want to say, now it's proven Alan is definitely a space cadet. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I'm totally a space cadet. Because <laughs> I want to travel to the space of Dharmakaya, the space of Dhammadhatu. And I think we found the right formula. Enjoy your day. See you later.